Perhaps you can recall a time in your life when you perhaps looked at someone, maybe you even looked at something, and you said, we've been through a lot together, haven't we? Maybe if you can't recall saying that to someone, maybe you recall seeing a movie or something like that where one character looked at another or maybe a character, a man looks at his dog or he looks at a weapon that he's used so many times in battle and he says, we've been through a lot together, haven't we? This week was uh, the anniversary uh, celebration for my wife and I, 14 years that we've been married and we celebrated that anniversary this week and throughout the course of the day it's as though a montage that would kind of start and stop ran through my mind as I thought about all the different things that we've experienced together over these 14 years and in some cases going back even further than that, some of the thoughts and just memories going through my mind. And when I think about what we are embarking on today, as we begin to study the book of Psalms, and I just personally think about the way in which this book has accompanied my family and I through some of the most trying circumstances that we have ever been through, I think we've been through a lot together, haven't we? As I come to the book of Psalms. And doubtless for many people, that's how they feel about the Word of God, many Christians. And doubtless for many Christians, the book of Psalms in particular can convey that sense. And you just remember walking through a season of affliction, and you were walking through a valley, and it's as though the God of heaven stretched forth His hand, and in the midst of the valley, He comforted you, He met you, He strengthened you, and He took you by the hand, as it were, and He brought you to the other side. And I don't know whether our study today finds you in a season of sunlight or rain, whatever it might be. I do hope and I pray and I ask even now that the God of heaven would comfort you and strengthen you and instruct you through the inspired text of Psalm 1 and the subsequent Psalms that we're going to study. It was a few years ago that I, uh, more than a few years ago, it was about 10 years ago, I was talking to a student after a Friday night Bible study, and I asked him, I said, if you could describe the book of Psalms in one sentence, how would you do it? And he said, give me a minute. So I give him a minute, and he's thinking he's a very analytical person. And so after thinking, he says, I may need two. So, yeah, two sentences, three sentences, whatever you need, or you don't have to be limited to one sentence, but if you had to describe the book of Psalms in one sentence, how would you describe it? So after deliberating, he ends up saying, a book of spirit-inspired prayers and psalms. And I thought, that, that was a pretty good synopsis. And I asked him, I said, don't you think it's interesting that in a book that is largely a collection of spirit-inspired prayers and praises, that the opening psalm in the book of Psalms does not have a prayer or does not have a declaration of praise in it. It's interesting. When you come into the entrance hall of the book of Psalms, as it were, the book of Psalms, the canonical book of Psalms, is comprised, if you will, of five books. It's book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. So when we come to the canonical books book of the Psalms, we're studying book one beginning today. We're looking at Psalm 1, and book one comprises Psalm 1 through uh, Psalm 41. As we come into, as it were, the entrance hall of the Psalms, what we find is an unmistakable declaration that God has put at the very beginning of the Psalms. As though before we enter further into the Psalter, we are to see the declaration that's made in Psalm 1. And I would also add the declaration that's made in Psalm 2, but Lord willing, we'll get there soon enough. Throughout the five books of the Psalter, we see prayers and praises and confession and adoration, thanksgiving from David, from the sons of Korah. We see it from uh, even Moses and Solomon. But yet when we come to this psalm, there's an unmistakable declaration placed at the beginning of the Psalter, I would argue, for a reason. So then, that leads to the question, okay, if it's here at the beginning of the Psalter for a reason, what is the reason that Psalm 1 is here as an unmistakable declaration? What's the reason for it? We're not told exactly. We're not even told explicitly in the text, but I think when we look at Psalm 1, we can start drawing some conclusions just by looking at the text. At the opening of the Psalter, that's a reference to the entirety of the book of Psalms, we are introduced to two types of people. We are introduced to the blessed and the wicked, the righteous and the ungodly. And at the end of the day, all of humanity falls into either one or the other of those categories. 
everybody. As polarizing as that may sound, as shocking as that may sound, here is the lens through which we are to see the world. Here is the lens through which we are to see and understand what we find in the rest of the Psalter. This unmistakable declaration. And then we see at the center of these contrasts are contrasts between what these people delight in and what the other doesn't delight in. What one does and what the other doesn't do. We're going to see that there are those who do not delight in God's Word. And we see that by an implicit contrast. They're ones who give counsel that is wicked. They stand in the path of sinners and they sit in the seat of scorners. That's one category. And then we have another category of those who by the grace of God delight in the instruction of Yahweh and by the grace of God they do it routinely, day and night. We see metaphoric contrasts. One man is like a tree planted by a river. The other one is like chaff. We see opposing destinies that at the end of the day these two routes are going to different places. There is an inseparable. There is a juncture that cannot be joined. When you get to the end of the righteous and when you get to the end of the wicked. Two ends contrasting one another. And I would argue this. That after seeing these two different people with two very different types of delights, with two differing destinies, it's as though, it's as though... This psalm is placed here to say the following. As you proceed through the Psalter, you want to recall and you want to remember that there are two types of people in this world at the end of the day, and there are two paths. Which kind of person are you, and which path are you on? And the other thing would be this. That as we enter into Psalm 1, and we see Yahweh's description of Yahweh's instruction and what the man of God should be doing with Yahweh's instruction, it's as though as we proceed into the Psalter, we should be saying, okay, this is Yahweh's instruction in the Psalter, and I should be doing what the blessed man of Psalm 1 did with Yahweh's instruction. I should be thinking upon it. I should be meditating upon it. And I also think, as we go into this psalm, it helps the reader see that what proceeds is Yahweh's instruction. Now, in this intrinsically challenging and overtly instructive opening psalm, I also find some help in a world where people are chasing after happiness. Psalm 1 shows the reader the true way to a God-defined, fruitful, and fulfilled life. And it also shows the reader the inevitable ruin that comes if one's thinking is shaped by the world as opposed to God's Word. If you want to know the way to a God-defined happy life, and I'll qualify that, and I'll nuance that, and I'll explain what I mean and don't mean by that once we get into verse 1, but if you want to see God's prescription for someone who is rooted in Christ and the route to a God-defined happy life, you'll see it shortly as we enter into the psalm. One qualifier before we get into the psalm. When you go through the psalms, you'll see the righteous mentioned quite a number of times. And it's important to remember what the root of righteousness is. Old Testament and New Testament alike. A saint in the Old Testament, a saint in the New Testament, at the end of the day, is justified by faith alone. Not by works. That's the Old Testament case. That's the New Testament case. Paul labors that in Romans chapter 4. He even quotes from Psalm 32 in making that case. You look at Abram in Genesis 15, later to be called Abraham. We find out that he was declared righteous in God's sight upon believing God. He believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Old Testament and New Testament alike. Justified by faith in light of and because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way that a person could be made righteous. And those who end up walking in righteousness do so because at the end of the day, they have the root of righteousness. They've been justified by faith in light of and because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So with that, let's proceed into the Psalter and see how Psalm 1 opens. Verse 1 reads, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So the psalmist begins by describing the blessed man. And the Hebrew word for blessed is the word ashrei. Ashrei. This word connotes 
happiness. But don't think of happiness in the worldly, carefree, only present kind of happiness if difficulty is absent kind of way. This isn't a lighthearted or frivolous kind of happiness. This word that's used here, particularly within the context of this psalm, speaks of being happy in God. You see that very clearly in verse 2. This psalm, and the way it's used regularly, and this word, and the way it's used regularly, speaks of someone who is blessed with favor from God. So the kind of happiness that the blessed man experiences is not a mere transitory feeling. It springs forth from having a right relationship with Yahweh through faith. The psalmist, all throughout the Psalter, speaks of the blessedness of the one who trusts in Yahweh. Psalm 34, verse 8, for instance, says, Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. It's Yahweh, when you look at the first half of that verse. Such faith is the soil from which faithfulness springs. This word that's used here, blessed, not only connotes happiness, but it's interestingly here in the plural. So it's as though... The psalmist is opening by saying, Oh, the manifold happiness that such a man enjoys. But there's more. So it's not only that the word connotes happiness, it's not only that it's in the plural, but it's at the beginning of the sentence in a kind of emphatic position. So it's as though when we enter into the Psalter, there's a kind of exclamation we meet upon walking through those doors and entering into the vestibule. Oh, the blessedness! Of this man. It's as though the psalmist is declaring, this is the kind of man you want to be like. This man is the blessed man. When I was younger, and I know this was the case for a lot of people, I know a lot of people had posters of different people up in their rooms. I didn't happen to have posters of people up in my rooms. Not that I was above such a thing. I didn't need a poster of Zach Morris up in my room to say, I think that, in my pre-Christ mind, I think that's what the blessed man looks like. That's the kind of man I want to be like. But people had posters up in their room of different people. I think a very popular one was Michael Jordan. And if people had a picture of Michael Jordan up in their room, they were usually thinking something like this, I want to be like Mike. If people had a picture of a different celebrity up in their room or something like that, they would look at that person and perhaps there would be some sense of admiration. There usually would be a sense of thinking, okay, that's a route to happiness for me. If I could be like that person, if I could kind of live the life that they live, there would be my route to happiness. And many of us know what that's like. Before knowing Christ, you would look at other people and you would say, oh, that's a blessed man or that's a blessed woman. That's the kind of man I want to be like. That's the kind of woman I want to be like. And as we walk into the salt it's as though God is making very clear for us I want you to see what the blessed man looks like and ultimately that will become much clearer when we get to the New Testament and we see the blessed man par excellence the Lord Jesus Christ more about that later so we walk into the Psalter and we start to get this depiction of what the blessed man looks like. And it's as though we're reading and we're seeing the imagery in this psalm and God is showing us the true route to God-prescribed happiness rather than constructing our own bridges to nowhere. At least bridges to nowhere good. So after this man is identified, he's described in negatives. Look at the verse. He's characterized by the counsel he will not walk in, the path he will not stand in, and the seat that he will not sit in. Notice the language. Not walk, nor stand, nor sit. Now these words connote possibly a couple of things at least. But one thing I want us to see is the idea of immersion. This man is not walking in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly. He's not standing in the path of sinners. He's not sitting in the seat of the scornful. He's not immersed in worldliness. He's not immersed in the world's thinking. He doesn't have fellowship with darkness. This is not who the blessed man is. He is not this. It's the language of immersion. There's a way he doesn't walk. There's a path in which he doesn't stand. And there's a seat in which he does not sit. As Derek Kidner notes... These words, quote, draw attention to the realms of thinking, behaving, and belonging. Thinking, behaving, and belonging. There may also be a sense in which these words are meant to reflect a progression into a settled state. A traveling down a kind of slippery slope. 
It could be the kind of slow fade that Casting Crowns sang about. It's kind of the slow boil that the frog goes through, not realizing that he's in boiling water until it's too late. That may be part of what's communicated here because you have this one who at first is walking in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly. So just hearing it, and then all of a sudden hearing it turns into walking, and walking is where we pick up in the text. But then it's not just walking in the counsel of the ungodly, it's taking a stand, and that's the idea of the language that's used there, standing in the path of the wicked, and the implication is that they are traveling down that path of sinners as well, doing what they do, living the way they live, and so on. And this settled state reaches its bottom, if you will, at least in this psalm, by sitting in the seat of the scornful. Sitting in the seat of those who scorn the things of God or those who don't engage in the same sinfulness that they themselves enjoy or endorse. Charles Spurgeon said that those who get to the latter point have taken their degree in vice. They're installed as doctors of damnation that are looked up to by other masters in Belial. Now before we move on from verse 1, I want us to look a little bit more closely at each of the things that's described here, each of the things that the blessed man does not do. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked, or the ungodly, if you look at another translation, they have a lot of counsel they want to give. They have counsel as to how you should run your household, what it means to be a good father, what it means to be a good mother. What it means to be a Christian. The world has opinions on that. They have counsel about those things too. They have counsel about what a relationship should look like between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. They have counsel about what you should do on the weekends. They have counsels about what movie you should watch. They have counsel about so many different things. The blessed man discerns it, sees that it doesn't line up with the will of God, and he does not walk in it. There's so much counsel this world would love to give you. They want you to wear their lenses and to see the world through their lenses whether they know it or not but the blessed man according to Psalm 1 will not do it I also want to say remember that when the scripture says the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly that does not necessarily mean the most depraved people in society you can get ungodly counsel from somebody who is very polite and well mannered You can get ungodly counsel from someone who does their eight minutes of Bible reading a day, maybe even attends church, is very polite and well-spoken and talented and so on, but they're still ungodly because at the root, the Bible is not the foundation for their thinking nor the authority for their living. But the whole point here is that there's ungodly counsel out there. You meet with it regularly. Sometimes as scary as it is, right, it emerges from our own fallen frames and in our minds. The blessed man does not walk in that counsel. He walks away from it. So that's one. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but two, nor does he stand in the path of sinners. So when we read that in English, we might interpret it wrongly. Standing in the path of sinners might sound to us like somebody standing in the path trying to stop people who are walking down the path. That's not what this means here. To stand in the path of sinners means to be on the path that they are on. So a sinner here, somebody who's kind of given to rebellion against God, there's a path that they're walking on in the New Testament. We know it to be the broad road that leads to destruction as opposed to the narrow way that leads to life. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. So we see here that the blessed man He doesn't walk and stand on that path. Standing on that path likely implies also traveling down that same road, sharing the same manner of life. And just as the New Testament asks, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What fellowship or what in common does a believer have with an unbeliever? That doesn't mean that you don't have compassion and care about those who are outside of Christ, but there's, there's a different path that you're on. So we could say in light of those questions, what does the path of a believer, a follower in Christ, have in common with one who is outside of Christ? Doubtless there should be many distinctions between the two. And we see here, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. This is where the digression reaches its bottom. It's a settled state where one is sitting with the scornful. 
The scornful are those who look at sin lightly. To use language from Proverbs 14.9 that says the fool mocks at sin. These are people who have contempt for the things of God. These are people who mock and make fun of biblical Christianity or the Scriptures or people who follow Christ. That's who the mockers are. You don't want to be sitting with the mockers, especially when you see how they're described in the book of Proverbs. You go through the book of Proverbs and you see how this word is used. This is how the mockers are described. The scoffers or the scorners, they're described as those who delight in scorning. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22. They are those who do not listen to rebukes. Proverbs 13, 1. They are ones who will, not, who will keep themselves at distance from the wise so that they might not be corrected. Proverbs 15, 12. They are those who are presumptuous and proud and act with pride. Proverbs 21.24 Their presence brings contention. 22.10 And they are often detested in the sight of others, believers and unbelievers alike. Proverbs 24 verse 9 The scoffer, to draw parallels from Romans 1, are those who do not only approve of sinful behavior, they mock and they scorn and they ridicule those who do not participate in their folly. Now, to be clear, just one other qualifier here, to not reach that level of depravity does not mean that one is on the right path. You know, you might think in your mind, like, all right, I'm not sitting in the seat of the scornful, so how bad could it be to stand in the path of sinners or walk in the counsel of the ungodly? Ungodliness can wear all different types of garb, from work clothes to holy robes. The blessed man doesn't walk or stand or sit in the places mentioned in verse 1. Having seen what the blessed man does not do, we come to verse 2 and we turn our attention to what, by the grace of God, he does do. Verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, or the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. So in contrast to the previous behaviors that the godly man, the blessed man or woman walks away from, here we see the blessed man delights in the word of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. His meditation is not merely a discipline. Rather, as the text tells us, his delight is in the law of the Lord. It reminds me of my one-year-old baby, Thea. She doesn't drink milk because she is well-disciplined and she follows a schedule to make sure she gets her milk in. She just loves it. She hungers for it. And sometimes her face just shows how much she enjoys it. She knows it's coming and she's like, Just like with a big smile on her face. She drinks the milk because she delights in it. She yearns for it. She wants it. And that's the same kind of metaphor that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2, verse 2 to speak of how we ought to desire the sincere milk of the Word as newborn babies. It's like a good instruction for us to say, when I see a child desiring milk, that's a good reminder of what should be happening in my heart when I approach the Word of God. There should be this funny expression, if you will, on my face when I come to the Word of God and I know I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to drink it. I'm going to be nourished by it. And if that flame begins to wane, and so often it does in our fallen frames, we must pray that the Holy Spirit would fan the flames of ember, would fan fan the embers of delight into flame. Now, the word law that's used here, right? But His delight is in the law of the Lord. You see the word law, and usually what you would think is, okay, I'm thinking the five books of the Bible that open the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Well, it could be used like that, and sometimes the word is used like that. Sometimes the law is used with reference to the Ten Commandments. But the idea here, and that word Torah, speaks of Yahweh's instruction. So here it's much more broad than saying, I delight in the opening five books of the Old Testament canon. It's saying, he delights in Yahweh's Torah, Yahweh's instruction. The blessed man thinks about it often, and he thinks about it often because he delights in it. The sentiment calls to mind the Psalm 119 psalmist who wrote, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119 verse 97. Verse 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That's the kind of delighting that's referenced here. Doubtless in both cases, the psalmist's delighting fueled his meditating. But I also want to say this. I would say that the converse is also true. 
that his meditating fueled his delighting. Sometimes people can look at a verse like this and say, okay, so I guess I'm not meant to think about the Word of God day and night because I'm not delighting in it as much as I should be. And then somebody might ask, well, what do I do? If I'm not delighting in the Word of God, and I'm see here that the blessed man delights in the Word, and it seems to be some sort of connection between his delighting and his meditating, but what happens if I'm not delighting? Then I would say, you meditate. Because the meditating, I would argue, will lead to delighting. I get that from Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, verse 8, we see how David knew how reflecting on God's Word could bring delight. There he wrote, The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. So know that so often in the life of a Christian, it's going to be delighting that's going to fuel your meditating, but so often it will also be your meditating thinking about the Word of God that's going to fuel your delighting. Well, that brings us to that practical step of meditating. You'll notice in the second half of the verse we're told, and in his law he meditates day and night. It's important to remember that biblical meditation is not emptying your mind and just sort of you know, thinking about whatever thoughts come and like watching your thoughts. See what you think about and then follow your mind. No, no, no. Biblical meditation presupposes that your mind is already filled. And that you're going to be thinking upon God's Word. That's biblical meditation. Now, interestingly, the word that's used here for meditate is an inflected form of the Hebrew word Haggah. This word is a very interesting word. It can be used to speak of like animals, how they growl. A good way to translate this word and understand what it means literally is to mutter. To mutter. To kind of say something under your breath. You know what that's like? You've seen people, you know, mutter under their breath, I can't believe that guy ripped me off. Does he, who does he think he is, right? Maybe you see you standing behind somebody on the line in the supermarket and they're like, I can't believe the lines are so long. What are all these people doing here today? They are meditating. They're meditating. That's the idea of biblical meditation. It's muttering. It's kind of talking to yourself about something. This will help you understand what God meant when He said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, when He told him, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. And you might read that and be like, This book of the law will not depart from your mouth. You might think, I don't know what God's talking about there. I get He's talking about meditating, so I'll just stick with that. I know He's talking about meditating, but He says this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth because the idea was that you're going to be just muttering about the Word of God to yourself. You're going to be talking about it out loud to yourself. Even as it was common in the ancient world to read out loud, it was common in the ancient world to meditate out loud. Maybe just not as loud. <laughs> But you start thinking and talking to yourself about the Word of God. Now, seeing how thoughts can inflame emotions, I would say this just by way of application. If you haven't taken up the art of biblical muttering, today is the day to do so. Start muttering. You're like, well, I don't know how to biblically meditate. I want to give you some advice on how to do that. You take Psalm 1. You go home. You look at Psalm 1 and you start just reading it. Just read it to yourself. Read the Word of God. Read it out loud. And then pray in light of it. Just start thinking about it. Talk, talk about it. Ask yourself questions about it. Try to rehearse some of the message. Rehearse some of the points. That's biblical meditation. You having the Word of God in your mind and you kind of thinking about it, talking about it. You can pray in light of it. You can pray for people that you know and you can say, Father, I pray that you would protect them from walking in the counsel of the ungodly. I pray that you will lead such a one to not stand in the path of sinners. Father, protect me. I don't want to look like a scorner. I don't want to be prideful. I don't want to be, I don't want to be unteachable. I don't want to be the things that the scorner is. Father, I pray for our church, that you would help us to delight in the instruction of Yahweh, and that you would help us to do it day and night. You're praying, but there's a sense in which you're also meditating, because you're taking the Word of God, and you're thinking about it, and you're praying in light of it. So if you haven't taken up the art of biblical muttering, if you will, really biblical meditation, today is a day to do so. To walk in the path that's been graciously carved out for you. I do think the opening two verses of the Psalter demonstrate how critical it is to get your counsel from the right place. I think Derek Kidner is right when he wrote, whatever shapes a man's thinking shapes his life. And I think that's a good summary of what you see in verse 1 and in verse 2. And that's driven home by the metaphors that follow in verses 3 and 4. 
First, we'll see the metaphor of the blessed man in this comparative imagery. In verse 3, we're told, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. And this was a metaphor that was doubtless readily understood and appreciated in the semi-arid land of Israel. Jeremiah used very similar imagery. If you wanted to reference Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8, instead of likening the ungodly to chaff, which is what we'll see in verse 4, there Jeremiah likens the ungodly to a shrub in the desert, but he uses pretty much the same imagery for the blessed man. There he talks about uh, the blessed man is one who trusts in Yahweh. And the cursed man is one who looks to man or makes his trust in man and looks to man for his strength. So it's a very appropriate comparison uh, to reference that passage. But speaking of here, you can see within the imagery in verse 3 that there's the connotations of vitality. There's also the connotation of stability. More about that shortly, but I want you to see this. I do think in this imagery we see some implications some imagery that connotes saving grace and sustaining grace. First we see that this man shall be like a tree firmly planted by rivers of water. Firmly planted by rivers of water. I've seen a lot of things in my life. I've never seen a tree plant itself. This isn't speaking about some like wildly grown kind of tree. That's not what this is speaking about here. This is talking about a tree that's planted I like the way that Gerald Wilson put it when he said, the faithful tree is not simply a wild oak that takes its position by happenstance. Those who delight in Yahweh's Torah are planted, a passive participle, as by a master gardener. I do think the language of planting well speaks to the work of regeneration, whereby God transplants someone from the kingdom of darkness, to use language from Colossians 1, and transplants them into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves. But then you also have the imagery of sustaining grace here. Notice where this tree is planted. This tree is planted by the rivers of water. Not only one river, multiple streams. So the imagery suggests that regardless of how circumstances change, whether there is drought, whether there is a heat wave, whatever it might be, fruitfulness of the tree will not be affected because the roots go down deep and are continuously nourished by flowing waters. Oh, what a picture. As a result, the tree thrives. It yields its fruit in its season. So the tree is not barren. The tree is fruitful. Notice here, Christian, there's no assurance that dry seasons will not come. Actually, there's assurance that proverbial dry seasons will come. In this world, you will have tribulation. But regardless of the season, the fruit will come. The New Testament Christian can readily conceive of the kind of fruit that they can expect to bring forth in light of God's grace. Fruit unto holiness, Romans 6.22. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22-23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 11. So notice this. The blessed man is not dependent on circumstances for his fruit or her fruit. It's not like, oh, if my circumstances were better, I would just bear so much more fruit in Christ. No, no, no. You are like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Your roots go down deep. You'll be nourished regardless of whether there's a drought or a heat wave. And if that's not great enough, look at what comes next. His or her leaf does not wither. Does not wither. So you have the encouragement that the fruit will come. And sometimes Christians can get so discouraged that the fruit hasn't already arrived that they want to see arrive. Right? I prayed for patience five minutes ago. (laughs) It's not here yet. Isn't the peace that surpasses understanding supposed to show up like that? The fruit will come. just may not come when you want it to come. It comes, as the text tells us, in its season. In its season. And then if that's not encouraging enough, then we come to this. Such a one's leaf does not wither. 
regardless of the weather, regardless of the most difficult circumstances of life, this tree and its leaves will not shrivel up. Why? Because of the grace-wrought, divinely appointed irrigation system that is joined to it. I think one of the best experiences that a Christian can have is coming through a fiery furnace, as it were, and then coming to the other side and seeing that their leaf did not wither, if you will. And they know, well, they shouldn't know, that it's not because of them. It's because they've been graciously planted, because they've been graciously sustained. And at the end of the day, we know as New Testament Christians that the only reason why our leaf will not wither is because of union with Jesus Christ. And what a feeling it is to get to the other side of a famine, of a heat wave, of a drought, and to say, the leaf did not wither. The fruit actually still showed up. And you know it wasn't because of you. Because you were sovereignly planted and sovereignly sustained. What grace. And furthermore, we're told that in whatever he, the blessed man, does, this speaks to the totality of his life, he prospers. Now while, when you go in the Old Covenant, you could see that material wealth, um, material prosperity of one kind or another, one's cattle and so on, was connected with covenant obedience and covenant blessing. However, just note, even under the Old Covenant, there were men like Elijah the prophet who, though godly, were not wealthy. So it's sad when this verse is used by prosperity preachers to say, look, you should be wealthy. No, no, no. Even under the Old Covenant, where there was an association for the nation of Israel with obedience and blessing, that didn't mean that every single person who obeyed God was going to be blessed financially. Take Elijah as an example. And don't forget about all the ungodly wicked who prospered, lest you become like one of Job's miserable comforters. And say, I know what's going on here. Job's a mess because he's sinned. Or because he's not repenting fast enough. No, no, no. So what is going on here in this verse? So while the prosperity spoken of here could have application to, say, one's crops and cattle, it's not, as one commentator notes, the assurance of great wealth, but primarily to God's blessing the works and words of the righteous. Let me further apply this so we can understand it. How would this apply to a New Testament Christian? Does that mean if you make a Christian the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, that the stock price is going to go up and earnings are going to go through the roof? No. That could happen, but it's not what this verse is saying. I think the application could be something like this. Christians are told to do everything that they do, that we do, whether in word or deed as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.17 And that a motivation for abounding in the work of the Lord is knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, you might say in one way or another, when a Christian does what he or she does for the glory of God and in love towards others, it's always prosperous and never useless. I think that would be a good application of this. Whatever you put your hand to, When you're doing it for the glory of God and out of love for God and for others, it's always prosperous. It's never useless. Having provided an image of the blessed man, the psalmist now provides a contrasting one of the ungodly. Verse 4 says, The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. So without going into an extended discourse as to what chaff was, if you're not familiar with it, think of it as the kind of the husks of grain that were separated from the seed in the threshing. So if you contrast that with this tree, you have this tree that is firm and is planted, and you have this little husk that could easily be blown away by the wind. That's the comparative imagery that we see in verses 3 and 4. The blessed man, the righteous man, the one who at the end of the day for us New Testament Christians is in Christ, is like this. But the ungodly, they're like this. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Such imagery can connote among other things, the superficiality of the life of the wicked, the worthlessness of a life not lived for the glory of God. Right? You just see that in the comparative imagery. You think of a tree that brings forth fruit, and that's good for people, and that's productive and helpful. Chaff isn't. So that may be part of the um, connotation here. 
as well as the ease with which God will deal with the wicked. Like the chaff, they will be blown away. Verse 5 says, and this is where we begin to see the opposing destinies, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. So the word therefore lets us know that a kind of verdict is coming. Therefore, in light of what you've seen in verses 1 and 2 and verses 3 and 4, therefore, in light of that, here's the conclusion of the matter for both parties. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. And while there were temporal judgments to be rendered in the Old Testament, in some cases where parties of Israelite jurisprudence would condemn guilty individuals and they'd be separated from the covenant community, the language here, especially in verse 4 and 6, I think ultimately applies to the ungodly not being acquitted in the final judgment. They will not stand in the judgment. It's worth noting here that the language of standing can connote different things, all of which are true. You see in Revelation 16, 17, for instance, the trembling of those when the wrath of God and the Lamb come. So there's a sense in which standing can speak of the way in which the ungodly will not be able to withstand and escape the judgment of God. There's a sense in which this language, especially if you get the kind of courtroom imagery that is likely going on here, there's a sense in which the ungodly will not be able to stand under the scrutiny of God's justice. After all, Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? And the idea there might be something like this, that when the books are open and every mouth is stopped and the whole world comes, becomes guilty before God and is revealed to be that, it's as though heads hang low. To use a metaphor from one commentator, it's as though the ungodly don't have a leg to stand on. This language also, again, with the courtroom imagery, could speak of just not being vindicated, not being acquitted, but being condemned. And then we see that These ones will not be gathered in the assembly of those whom God has called righteous. In the final analysis, there will be constituted an assembly of those who God ordains, has ordained to be and are righteous. Righteous. I think one of the things that is a possible scary implication of this is that even if they once stood among the public assembly of God's people, they wouldn't any longer. It reminds us of the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. It reminds us of the parable or Jesus' use of the metaphors of the sheep and the goats, that there is coming a separation. Brethren, you must live in light of that reality. It will help you live in such a way that you could discern soberly the world in which you live. This is what's coming. There is coming a separation. And it should make us all the more zealous to tell those who don't know Christ about the goodness of God and the Gospel. It should make us all the more zealous to humble ourselves before the holiness of God and to see that we honor our great God in the here and now. Verse 6 concludes this um, psalm with both an explanation for the separation and a final contrast of the two ways. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I agree with James Montgomery Boyce when he said, verse 6 is a fitting end to the psalm and a proper thematic statement from which to proceed on into the Psalter. Now when a psalmist says here that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, it's not just talking about like He knows. He knows everything. His understanding is infinite We know that. Psalm 147, verse 5. The Hebrew word that's used here, yada, speaks of a kind of intimate acquaintance with. Yahweh is intimately acquainted with the way of the righteous. He loves righteousness. These are one of the, that's one of the things he delights in. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. Therefore, he not only knows the way of the righteous, he loves the way of the righteous. It's the way that he carved out. It's a way that well reflects and images his righteous character. And as a result, the implication is the righteous, having been made righteous by the grace of God, having made their calling and election sure, if you will, by walking in righteousness, they can have assurance of a secure standing in the day of judgment. This is not the case with the ungodly. 
They will, as the scripture says here, but one way, uh, having, not, having seen that they will not stand in a position of acquittal on the day of judgment in the last verse, we're told, but the way of the wicked will perish. I think the language connotes that they will come to nothing. But notice, it's not just the ungodly that's being spoken of here, it's the way of the ungodly. The way that they've carved out for themselves. Like the woolly mammoth or the dodo bird, one day the way of the wicked will be extinct. How amazing is that? You see rebellion in this world against God. You see the way of the ungodly. It takes all different kinds of forms. It takes the form of abuse. It takes the, uh, the form of foul language. It takes the form of cheating and stealing and blaspheming. One day, the way of the ungodly will perish. She's not going to be here anymore. The way of the righteous forever in the presence of God, rejoicing in God. Think about what we're doing here today. We're praising God. We're looking at Yahweh's instruction. We're glorifying the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. And that's a forever thing. You look at corruption and injustice and evil and iniquity, and it's got an expiration date. One day, the way of the ungodly will perish. And before we leave Psalm 1, two things. That is how the psalm opens and closes. It sets before us two ways of living, not a third. To be true to this psalm, if we just look at the psalm, if we're someone walking into the Psalter and we see before our eyes what this psalm is telling us, we are seeing contrasting ways of living. We're seeing two different types of people with two different types of delights and two different lenses through which they view the world. And I think that's so important for us as New Testament Christians, especially living in North America. I can speak to living in North America because I live in North America. And we live in a land that embraces moral dubiety, moral ambiguity. That's the kind of world we live in. Our world loves ambiguity as it relates to moral and ethical norms. We see that over and over again in our world. People don't like when people make judgment calls as to what is right or wrong. And that shouldn't be done in a nasty way. It shouldn't be done with pride. It should be done with gentleness and respect. But it needs to be done. Our world, however, doesn't have that view. People have different perspectives, right? Not wrong ones. People have alternative lifestyles. Not sinful ones. People are good people. He's a good guy. She's a good girl. Unless they're a homicidal dictator that's killed millions of people, and even then some people will be reluctant to identify them as morally evil. Maybe it's their parents' fault. And this helps us to see God's perspective through the psalmist. God stands in opposition to such a lack of clarity. God's Word teaches us that there is a way of blessedness that is the path of life that the one who is justified by grace through faith is on. There's also a way of sinfulness that leads to destruction. And it is of the utmost importance that everyone in this room would find themselves numbered among the assembly that God has called righteous. Remember that old hymn? I think it's a hymn. Um, that said, Oh, how I want to be in that number. I always change the words because I can't remember. Yes, I want to be in that number. When the saints go marching in. And you think about that. And if you say, well, I want to be in that number. Like, I I want to be. I get the picture here. I get two paths. I see that they're going to two separate places. And I want to be in that number. Well, if Psalm 1 is the entrance point into the Psalter, be reminded that faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone is the point of entry into that number. There's no other way into the assembly that God has called righteous other than by grace, through faith, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I noted earlier, and I'll say it again, He is the blessed man par excellence. Oh, we'll see Him in Psalm 2. And we'll see, even at the end of Psalm 2, it's so beautiful. You look at Psalm 1, it begins with what? How blessed is the man. You look at the end of Psalm 2, and what do you see? Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who what at the end of Psalm 2? Blessed is the man who puts his trust in Him, the Son of God who's identified in Psalm 2. We're going to see gospel implications even as we enter into Psalm 2. 
Blessed are all who trust in Him. We come to the New Testament and we see very clearly that Jesus bore the curse of divine wrath, of divine punishment on behalf of all who would believe in Him for the forgiveness of sins. So if you want to be in that number, there's only one way to be among that assembly that God has called righteous. It's because the blessed man par excellence, the perfectly righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous branch that was prophesied of in the Old Testament, He bore the wrath of God on the cross. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Christ died for us. The just, He was the just, and He died for the unjust to bring us to God and to bring us into that assembly that God has called righteous. So the point of entry into the Psalter, Psalm 1. The point of entry into the assembly that God has called righteous is by turning away from your sin, repenting, and looking to Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. And by the grace of God, you will then walk in the path of blessedness that we see described in this psalm. But that comes first. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your instruction that we are not left to walk through this world as those who are Without light, thank you, Lord, to use language from Psalm 36. In your light, we see light. And thank you, Heavenly Father, for the way in which your word is a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So, Father, may you find us by your grace instructed this day. May you find us, Father, walking not in the counsel of the ungodly or standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of the scornful, Lord. May you so work in our hearts by your grace that we would delight in your instruction. That we would be like those spoken of in Deuteronomy 6 who think about your instruction regularly and talk about it on the road and so on, Lord. May you find us muttering to ourselves about your greatness and your glory. May you find us meditating on your word. And we thank you, Father, for the grace that transplanted us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We have no righteousness of our own to boast of. We know that we are nothing in and of ourselves, Lord. But we thank You for grace that is greater than all of our sin. And Father, we pray that You would help us to bear fruit that would glorify You and would do good, Lord, to others. And Father, if there is anyone in this place who hasn't come to Your Son, the Righteous One, Father, may today be the day that You bring about in their hearts the grace of repentance, Lord. And may there be a sorrowing over sin. May, may, may there be a, a grace-wrought fear of the holy God of the universe. But then, Heavenly Father, I pray that at the same time, there would be this spirit-wrought faith whereby they see the gospel of Jesus Christ. They see that He died for sinners and rose from the grave. And they say, I believe that He is the Son of God and that He is my Savior and He died for my sins. And Father, by grace, would they then walk with You and bear fruit. We thank You for this day and this great honor of being gathered in this assembly, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.